Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. Is a Fed pivot imminent? Elevated market volatility over the past week has led to some hope in the market and speculation that the Fed might pivot. Is it still too early to call this or not? I speak with Ludovic Subran, chief economist of Allianz, who is ranked among the top 100 most influential economists. He's worked for the World Bank, the United Nations World Food Programme and the French Ministry of Finance. It's a privilege to speak with you, Ludovic. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. If we look at the U.S. Federal Reserve, there increasingly appears to be a split amongst its members about what to do next. So over the past seven months, the Fed has raised rates by three percentage points. There are likely only a few moves left until the Fed pauses the rate hikes. But how far and how fast should it go? And what is the likelihood that it is slamming the brakes on too hard, Ludovic? It's, it's a good question. In our scenarios, we expect the Fed to move at least to 4% by the end of the year. So another almost, you know, 75 basis points or so, and then maybe slightly more, right? So, so my main expectation is maybe that the Fed gets to 4% by the end of the year. It could actually get to 4% by the end of November. And then in the first half of 23, they pause around 4 or 4.25, 4.5, and then starts cutting in the second half of 23, right? So so they're going to sustain a pretty high level when you compare to um, the so-called natural rate, so where the rate at which the Fed should be if they don't want to create more recession risk, yeah? Mm-hmm. They're going to be above that rate for quite some time because they really want to kill the overheating, right? The, this this excess inflation that has been built up for the past 18 months is really something that is a cost to the middle class. And so uh, the Fed is on a mission and it's very determined to do so. And so I think they're going to keep uh, higher rates for a bit longer before they decide to cut, which, you know, could create a recession in the U.S., which is also our central scenario for 23. Okay, some say that a Fed pivot is imminent. They're looking at two straight days of hefty gains for U.S. stocks. Australia's central bank becoming the first central bank to surprise forecasters with a less than expected 25 basis point hike, which we'll talk a little bit about in in a while as well. And then, of course, there's softer than expected U.S. economic data also fueling pivot expectations. So on this point in particular, is a Fed pivot imminent? What are your views? I don't think so. I, I mean, I wish for, for it because I think they're really not helping by having this very fast and very high interest rate. So I, I've always been more on the dovisher side, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's imminent. I mean, the look, you know, even the president, the chairman of the Fed actually said that he doesn't even see a rate cut for 23. I think the Australian move is quite interesting. I think the, the, the story of Australia is a bit different also. It's a commodity and financial-led overheating. So they have a very different economic structure. In the case of the U.S., I think, you know, I, again, I, I think the, the odds of a pivot in the November meeting are maybe, what, 10%? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so that does mean that equity markets could be a little, you know, wrong-footed 
and that there could be another correction coming if they really betted everything on the Fed being more lenient. I think it's not coming anytime soon, unfortunately, unfortunately. All right, let's uh, dig into that argument for Australia, which has staked out an outlier position among central banks, becoming the first to break with outsized interest rate increases. And you touch on this point that uh, given the context, it may not be analogous to see a link with other central banks. But uh, to that point, which we are hearing circulating in the narrative, do you think other central banks will follow? You know, I think central banks are really in a very tight position. If you just look at what the uh, Bank of England had to do just to save, you know, the, the UK from a massive crash, you know, this, you know, a lot of people have been reading into this as a monetary policy pivot also when it's basically just, you know, something that is part of the central bank job just to make sure that there is no financial stability risk buildup. So I think people are going to try to look for uh, central banks that are going to move or cave in first. And maybe Australia started something. Mm -hmm. But again, you have to look back at the sources of inflation, the risk of wage price loops, and also, you know, why central banks are doing the heavy lifting now, uh, which is mostly because in the case of the U.S., there is overheating. In the case of Europe, because inflation is really, uh, you know, getting to the 10% mark, which is, you know, first since 30 years in Europe. So I think in the case of Australia, it's different. You know, Australia before COVID has had 25 years without a recession or something. So there was already a bit of overheating. And the Central Bank of Australia started to hike quite preventively, I must say, so mm-hmm. quite nicely. Um, and, and they, you know, the currency is not less as, is not as risk as other currencies also because they have these large uh, exports in commodities, right? So the, the situation of Australia is very different, for example, from the situation of most Asian countries or, or the situation of, you know, Japan or Korea for the matter, which, which are uh, very interesting. So I, I, I think, again, the, the pivot is coming. I think it could come as early in Europe as, you know, the turn of this year, early 23, because we are heading straight into recession. So I think the Eurozone, the ECB may be the first one to cave in, in the large uh, advanced economies. But I still think for the emerging markets, you know, they're going to have to keep interest rate tighter, even tighter for quite some time because everybody is worried about a reverse currency war. Everybody's worried now that if you don't deliver enough when it comes to rates, you have what happened to the UK. Your currency plummets. And so especially for um, South Asian central banks, the devil is in the detail. They really need to make sure. Look, think about Malaysia, where most of the debt is denominated in dollar. They really need to avoid a strong depreciation of the currency. So I think central bank in Asia may actually be uh, staying in the tightening game a bit longer uh, than the Fed or, or clearly the Bank of Australia. So you, that, that's why it's important to put this back into perspective to understand that, you know, the, the, the reason behind inflation and also the pace at which you normalize is going to vastly influence not only the financial backdrop uh, and the markets and so forth, but also your, you know, your ability co- to control your currency, which I think is going to be quite essential. In 23, I, I expect quite some disorder in the currency war. Ludovic Subran is Chief Economist of Allianz, joining me live here on Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. Now, overnight, Ludovic, the OPEC Plus nations announced a deal to cut production. Oil prices are already rising as a result. And Brent crude trading at around 94 US dollars per barrel. West Texas crude is at 88 US dollars. Do you think rising petrol prices is going to weigh on the Fed's decisions moving forward? Of course, and unfortunately, you know, of course it will because it will lead to a rebound of energy price inflation. 
So, so that, and, and we know that then it diffuses into other sectors, transportation and food and services. And so that's going to create a reminiscing effect, you know, uh, and no rate hike will come down the pump price. You know, it's not because you increase interest rates that you're going to have, you know, lower price at the, at the station, right? It's, it's, it's vastly uncorrelated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, why? Because I think this is exactly the problem that central banks are in right now, which is they have to hike in a period of negative supply shocks. They have to hike interest rates, not only because the economy is overheating, not only because demand is too strong. Actually, demand is slowing down very fastly. But they have to hike because, you know, you have uh, scarcer resources. You have, you know, scarcity economics, right? So they're going to be hiking in a period where most of the oil price increase is going to be driven by a lack of supply because OPEC members are playing a bit the bluff card on supply. So it's not the best moment to hike, but again, you know, the question is, there is so much overeating, there is so much to normalize for, that I think, indeed, this the fact that uh, oil prices will increase and that energy-led inflation will increase could actually, you know, uh, procrastinate, postpone a bit the Fed policy pivot that you mentioned. I think this is really heading into the direction where nobody in the U.S. can sustain another year above 5% of inflation, you know, for, for the U.S., right? So every cards are on the table um, to make sure that inflation goes back down, even though it's the wrong kind of inflation. And even though by hiking, you won't solve the fact that OPEC members may still want to export, you know, nice and pricey oil to the rest of the world. That, that's the world we're living in. And so that's why it is creating a bit this, this uncomfortable mix of lower growth, higher inflation and higher cost of financing for, you know, at least the next 18 months. Ludovic, your chief economist of Allianz, help us understand how do higher oil prices factor into your investment strategies? Look, the, we are a patient investor, right? We're a long-term investor. So we have asset managers and I think for them, it's been, you know, tactical bets on commodities or tactical bets on energy companies or tactical bets on inflation hedges, you know. For us as the, the group and the investment and the strategic allocation, we look more at the structural breaks. And for me, the structural break is energy prices are going to be higher and more volatile for longer, right? So it's a regime switch from where we were, you know, three years ago, two years ago. So that means we're going to have to live with a bit more volatility on the inflation numbers and readings. So that's the end of the great moderation. So a lot more, you know, uh, agility, I would say, on the way we manage the investment to time a bit the, the, the peak and trust of the market. That also means that we're going to have to really look again at how we help the world decarbonize. Because energy and climate security go together and because now the price signal is strong for a lot of the investment to go into uh, greening, to go into uh, green infrastructure, to go into renewable energy. And so for us, and we've been a pioneer, you know, we are a founding member of the Alliance of Asset Owners for a net zero economy. So this environment of higher oil prices is pushing us even more to be uh, financing Uh, the economic transition, the just transition. And the third thing that it is, I think, uh, affecting also Mm -hmm. is this idea of looking at geographies a bit differently. The energy cycle that we're in is creating very fragmented a world where, for example, the U.S. has uh, an energy attractiveness that is very strong compared to Europe, right? Because Europe is going to be stuck 
with this gasmagedon for at least the next five years. It's not going to go away in 23. Mm -hmm. The war in Ukraine is not going to go away in 23. So we're also looking at, at what does it mean when we allocate across the world, and especially, you know, Europe is our footprint, but how do we make sure we diversify and we offer services to our clients to diversify out of Europe? You know, so, so that they have a balanced portfolio and they can benefit a bit from different growth paths because of this energy, um, you know, crossroads that we're at that is creating, you know, a pivot for manufacturing, a pivot for transport, a pivot for the grid and for the downstream. You know, all of that changes are structural. And so for us as an investor, as an asset manager, it is, of course, creating this structural investment allocation strategy changes. And, and that's what uh, we are still, you know, learning from as, as this new environment sets in. Now, OPEC's move is certainly going to complicate the West's plans to dry up uh, Russia's largest source of financing. What impact do you think this could have in Europe? So, so you know, uh, Europe and the US, so the G7 countries have put sanctions on Russian oil. Right, the sanction on Russian oil would be neutral in terms of impact had we had a 10% increase in OPEC production. So, so the 10% increase in OPEC production, so meaning the the volume of OPEC countries' production back to I would say the end of 2018, would have been enough to completely avoid the price effect of the Russian oil. We have the Russian gas, and the Russian gas is catastrophic, right? Because the 10% decrease in Russian gas supply is creating almost 1.5 to almost 2% drop in growth net. So it's, it's like it's Fukushima style type of elasticity. And so this is the gas issue is massive. And this is all what is creating the recession condition that we see in Europe. On oil, we would have been fine had OPEC pumped up. Now that OPEC clearly plays the money game, this is creating an additional cost on oil prices. And so for a 10% increase in oil prices, the cost to inflation in Europe is plus 0.2 and the cost of growth is minus 0.1. So if you make the calculation, these type of OPEC moves could cost as much as half a point of inflation and a quarter of a point of growth shaved off for uh, Europe in 23. So it's not completely, you know, without an effect, right? Because of the sanction on Russian oil, there was the strong assumption that we could get more substitution on oil, on gas again, it's a different story. And this, if it's not coming, this piles up again on, on the cost of living crisis. And this piles up again on the cost to the, the, the very production, right? Because oil is still a very strong source of energy, also for the manufacturing sector, which is, of course, the one that is the most impacted should we have a form of gas shortage or even just the gas prices that we see today that are still quite prohibitive. You know, I know tons of companies in Europe that have just ceased to produce because they have absolutely no forward visibility on the cost of production because of gas prices being so high and now oil prices being so high. So this is not without effect. Mm -hmm. And this is a bit unfortunate that we're not playing a bit the, the, the diplomacy cards on this topic because I understand the vested interest of OPEC members, but I still think they could pump up a little bit more to help uh, their good friends in Europe because right now we actually need it. Well, speaking of growth, I want to look at the U.S. housing market now. Mortgage rates in the U.S. are closing in on 7% and some analysts warn that housing prices will fall. Others say that the U.S. housing market is already in recession. You've contributed to a paper on this. Can you share with us your view? 
You know, I think uh, for me, the if there is a recession in the U.S., which we think there will be, even though not too deep, it will come from the housing market. So we've been looking at the cracks in the housing sector for at least the past six months because we saw the Fed was super determined and we said, okay, where is it going to go, right? Um, I, if I look now, I was just looking at the number this morning, housing affordability. So, so really mortgage refinancing costs in the purchasing power of people is deteriorating faster than at any point in the data history that we have. If you look at the uh, numbers from the uh, change year on year of uh, housing affordability. Plus, you know, there is no real supply expansion of housing. Plus, there are a lot of frictions, especially the credit. You know, most of the mortgages in the U.S. are at variable exchange rate. Uh, variable mortgage rate. Mm-hmm. So, of course, there is full transmission of what the Fed is doing into uh, uh, into and what will they continue to do into um, into the market. So, you know, we we are looking at this. We we very concerned about the housing sector. I think there's going to be a wave of foreclosures. I think there's going to be a wave of uh, delinquencies. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty worried. The good news, if there is a good news in this, because, of course, the middle class is paying the high price. The, the good news is I don't see the same type of excesses that we saw in 2008, 2009. Right. So there will be no Freddie Mac, no Lemonesque moment, I hope. And, and of course, again, you still the ABC's bank, for example, are better. Um, you know, a sounder. I think there, there's been a lot of consumer protection, even though Trump tried to undo that a lot. I, I still think the there is no accumulation, I would say, of, of mortgage-related risk in financial institutions that could create the type of more systemic event we saw in 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. But of course, this, is, this still needs to be watched because just look at what happened in the UK where the Bank of England had to intervene to save uh, some pension funds who had open position on the on the UK bonds, on the guilt, you know, and that, you know, because they were liability-driven investors. I think, you know, as the Fed continues to normalize, they're going to have to look at whether there are, you know, more concentration of risk on the housing uh, sector. But I think the main issue that is almost unavailable now is delinquencies and foreclosures on the rise, especially in those areas where prices have been quite high and people have been, you know, piling up a lot of debts. And now the that the leverage ratios in some, you know, in some parts of the U.S., especially the East Coast, uh, you see leverage ratios that are crazy. People are over-indebted, you know, more than 70% of the disposable income. Mm-hmm. So, of course, when you have this type of markets and mm. people, you know, the transaction volumes are going down also, so they cannot really sell back. This creates a bit of, of personal delinquencies. So we, we're going to be looking at this. Um, but again, I don't find right now concerns for that to be systemic, which is unfortunately the, the story. But can this accelerate the risk of recession? For sure. Based on this, what strategy do you recommend when you look at U.S. equity markets? I've not been very uh, constructive U.S. equity market for the past six months, right? I've, I, um, and of course, maybe I'm biased, but I'm a bit more positive European equity because the excesses were not as strong. So, so even though Europe is, you know, heading in a recession a bit faster than I would have liked, uh, I still think European equities are a bit sounder and they're more defensive, more value grow, more value stocks and so forth. I think the U.S. equities, there is still, you know, very, very good, you know, stock picking to happen. I, I, we still expect a correction by five to seven percent by the end of the year. And then we have a rebound, a recovery of U.S. equity markets in the first half of 23. 
So, so we, the, the timing is that I think not all of the recession and the housing shock is priced in right now. Mm-hmm. So there's still be another correction. And then I think in beginning of 23, I think the, the market is going to price in the, the fast rebound that I expect from the recession from the U.S. economy, right? So it's, a, it's, a, it's still a soft landing, you know, kind of, of move. Um, but, but I think equity markets, I will, I will still hold for now uh, or be very cherry picking and then re-enter a bit later once the bulk of the correction has happened. Tremendous insights. Ludovic, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much, Michelle. Ludovic Subran is Chief Economist of Allianz, my special guest today in Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.